Let's seek the Lord briefly as we come to the Word. Lord, truths unchanged that will echo for eternity. We praise you that those words are here before us today. As we open the word, I pray for understanding that the Spirit of God would teach and strengthen, that you, Spirit, by your grace to us will help us to discern where we fall short, where we need conviction and change, where we uh, need encouragement and strength of heart. We pray, Father, in, in behalf of those who know not Christ and pray for your saving grace to rest upon them. For those who know you, Lord, may we rejoice in the truth that we find in your word and may it deepen and change us. Lord, I have no power in my own strength to make clear this text and its significance. But by the Spirit of God, we will so understand it. Come, meet with us here, strengthen us for your glory, build up your church in the word. Through Jesus we pray, amen. How do you view your body? What you think about your body is an indicator of your spiritual maturity. Outside of Christ, many in our world view the body as a fragile treasure to protect at all cost. Such people obsess over health. They fear illness. They detest the aging process. It's a spooky world out there for them. Others idolize the body. They obsess over fitness, shaping, sculpting, chiseling their bodies in pursuit of brawn and beauty. There's others that live only to satisfy their bodily appetites and they destroy their bodies in the process, harming them. The alcoholic, the glutton, the couch potato, the meth head, or the sexually promiscuous. Still others in our day view their bodies as enemies, some even going so far as to mutilate and assault them with hormones to change what is there? And even beyond these outlier groups, many simply live with recurring harsh reminders that their bodies are ugly, that they are weak, that they are temporal. That's where our world lives as it looks at the body. But what is it that sets the believer's view of the body apart? What sets apart the believer's view of the body is hope. A biblical view of the human body is rooted in a bold, triumphant, glorious prospect of what is to come. This future prospect does not lead us as Christians to despise or to misuse or ignore or worship our bodies. It simply directs us to view them in the light of God's promises rooted in our Savior's conquest of death. Our union with Christ changes everything. It changes how we view every aspect of our daily lives. United by faith to Christ, we become the objects of his sovereign program to utterly eliminate death. And thus, one glad day to transform our bodies into the likeness of his resurrection body. 
This future hope was sorely lacking in the worldview of some of the Corinthian believers. They had come to trust in the resurrection of Christ. We found that here in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. They had put their faith and their hope in Christ crucified and risen. Verse 11 as well. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. So they put their faith and their trust in the gospel. But some were denying that born-again believers would rise bodily from the dead. Jesus did, but not believers. Verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, and they had trusted that message, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? As we've considered, the source of this false teaching was, first of all, their decision to integrate the gospel with the false beliefs of their pagan world. And that included the idea, simply said, that the body is utter trash. And so the goal was to leave it, to get away from it. Another source of their false teaching was that they did not understand how the bodily resurrection could possibly work, nor what good it would accomplish if it happened. And as far as they were concerned, their gift of tongues, for instance, proved that they were already spirit people. They were already living on a heavenly plane. And so departure from the body was seen as only good. They were spiritual people. And so all they could hope for then was to rid themselves of the body. This would be their triumph. In chapter 15, The Apostle Paul adamantly disagrees, and he warns them that they are toying with the gospel itself when they they think this way, thus toying with their own eternal futures. In verses 35 now, as we come to that verse through verse 49, Paul turns to the how of the resurrection body. Not the scientific how, but the theological how. How is this possible? How can we believe in the resurrection of the dead? After defending that resurrection of believers as an essential part of the conquest of Christ's resurrection, I mean, Jesus hasn't really beat death if you just die. There is no bodily future. He will defeat death. He has defeated death, and it will include you and your body in the future. He now explains both the continuity and the discontinuity of the resurrection body. That is what continues on in the resurrection body and what is different about it. There's overlapping themes here, but just to break it down for our Western minds as we think on what, by way of outline, first, continuity. Our earthly bodies will themselves be glorified. And we might want to underline that word themselves. Our earthly bodies themselves, this body, will be resurrected. Verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Do they come back to life? He anticipates this philosophical objection. But Paul, I mean, really, is this possible? Are you seriously suggesting that our rotting corpses will spring to life? What on earth would that look like? Say, well, let's consider that, verse 36. You foolish person. 
I think they were probably anticipating that one. They're saying in verse 35 as they're hearing this, yeah, that's what I think, exactly what I think. How, this is, how is this going to work? And he then says, you foolish people. Now, I, I don't think that probably hit them as harshly as it hits us. But what he's saying there is you're lacking understanding. It's certainly no compliment. And we're probably right to read into verse 35 some attitude. There was some arrogance there on their part. Okay, Paul, you go ahead and try to explain this. There is nothing that works for us when it comes to thinking of our rotting corpses being raised from the, from the grave. What good is that? How is that going to work? You are lacking wisdom, Paul says. He sh- kind of shoves it back at them. He is not the one lacking wisdom of the world. They are, continuing with verse 36. You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Paul drawing here, obviously, an analogy from horticulture. You is emphatic. It would be like in our day, we would underline it or italicize it. You, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Gordon Fee nicely catches the emphasis here when he says, you have the answer right in your hands. You've seen a lifeless seed come to life out of the earth, have you not? Now, technically speaking, seeds are not dead, but he's speaking phenomenologically here. Seeds appear to be dead. When we speak of a half moon, we don't think it actually is in half. When we speak of the sun rising, we don't think that it's actually rising. Most people, anyway. (laughs) But he's speaking that way here. A seed is dead. And isn't it an astonishing phenomenon in this world? The germination of a seed. I mean, I, I just, I've never gotten over it. It is astonishing. You scratch this divot in the earth, you drop a seed in, you cover it with dirt. And anybody that didn't have the experience of it would say, you're nuts. You think that's going to produce food? It's, it's crazy. The seed drops in the earth and it produces a plant. Food astonishing. You've got it right there in your hand. You've seen it in a sense by way of analogy. Verse 37. And what you sow, that seed that you put in the ground, is not the body, the essence that is to be, but a bare kernel perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. As he's saying, The seed you sow is very unlike the plant that eventually emerges out of the soil. That plant does indeed emerge, however, from that seed. You do not plant a cabbage seed and it produces broccoli. Never happened. That seed will produce that thing. So it is with the resurrection body. The resurrection body is the same body that is buried. There is a continuity in the future. So Paul appeals to then another analogy to stress the innate distinctiveness of the various bodies that God has created. Verse 39. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. 
These various types of bodies are all designed by the creator with distinctiveness. Sticking with the theme of distinctive bodies, Paul continues, now looking skyward, verse 40. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one kind, is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs with star in glory, in brilliance, in splendor. So there are earthly bodies. He speaks here of the terrestrial, human beings, animals, per verse 39. And then there are the heavenly bodies, the celestial bodies. The point being what? God has created everything with distinctive design and purpose. And he created you to live eternally. He created us as human beings to live forever. Death does not end us. Like seed in the earth, our corpses will themselves rise to new form. And there will be a direct connection some of us will be cabbage some of us will be broccoli we're going to be what we are we're going to be who we are through all eternity now if that's depressing to you (laughs) hang on he's going somewhere with this but i'm not particularly excited about the fact that i'm stuck in this forever but on the other hand it should be It's who God made us. Each one with design and purpose, each one distinctive, death does not end us. Now, while the point's been made, Paul turns now to emphasize the flip side. There's the continuity. It is we ourselves whose bodies will be glorified. Moving from the seed analogy in verses 35 and following, he considers the new life that springs from that seed, life which is exponentially improved. So we look now, secondly, at the discontinuity. Our glorified bodies will be radically different from the body that is. It is our body, but radically different. Verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of of the dead. In other words, just as a kernel of corn differs from the fully developed corn stalk, heavy with full of, full of ears, so the resurrection body differs from the earthly body. The two are one. The resurrection body is the earthly body remade. However, as verse 42 continues, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. In the analogy of sowing the seed, your body is perishable, but what is raised to life is imperishable. Verse 43, it is sown in dishonor. Second couplet, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised in a spiritual body. So just visually here, we see these lines of comparison. Here is the discontinuity. Here is the difference 
that we will realize the new body that we receive, this resurrected body, will be imperishable, full of glory and power. It will be a spiritual body. In consequence of our fall into sin as a race, our earthly bodies are subject to corruption, to ruin, to humiliation, and to death. This is our reality. But our resurrection bodies will not be subject to decay or death. They will be powerful and they will be glorious. Our resurrection bodies will be spiritual. Verse 44. It's very common right here to get off track and to think spiritual means non-corporal, non-physical. That is not the point of spiritual here. It is a body fit for the existence of heaven, an eternal, imperishable, supernatural body that will function on the new earth for all eternity. So don't think in terms of spiritual as untouchable, some sort of wisp of wind in eternity, but rather of one fitted for that future. Paul said this and to the Philippians, wrote this, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. That is, at the coming of Christ, the lowly body, the perishable body, will be resurrected into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. He will subject our bodies to resurrection glory. Paul now appeals to Scripture in verse 44. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. So God breathed life into Adam, and Adam became a living being with natural, earth-bound body, Genesis 2 and verse 7. But as the last Adam, as the head of the new race of the redeemed, Jesus is a life-giving spirit. Again, that doesn't mean he's non-corporal, non-physical. But it speaks of his different role in relationship to his people. This certainly means this, that he's a life-giving spirit certainly means that he's the savior of our souls. But in this context, the emphasis is on Christ as the head of all who will receive a resurrection body. He's a life-giving spirit in the sense of he is the firstborn from the dead and will give new life to his people. Adam brought us death. Christ brings us alive forever. Verse 46, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. This kind of strikes us as a weird insertion here. And I think so because it's really not where we find ourselves today, but I think he's giving this a shot at the members of the church who believe they were already spirit people, enjoying a heavenly existence. And what he's saying here then in verse 46 is you got this wrong. The natural body is first. Then the spiritual body will come at the return of Christ. We have earthly bodies now. We await glorified bodies in the future. But returning then to that theme, verse 
uh, as we see here in verse 46, verse 47, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. We'll make a mistake here, I think, if we take from heaven as meaning source or origin. Adam's origin was indeed from the earth, and Jesus' origin was indeed from heaven. No question about that. But the point here is that Adam's body was an earthly body fitted to an earthly existence. Tapping Paul's analogy earlier, Adam's body was like a faint star in the night sky. But Christ's resurrection body fits him for heaven and shines like the sun in comparison. This is obviously the the right interpretation when we consider the verse that is to follow. So let me say it this way just to make it easier. Verse 47, the first man was of the earth. He was fitted for the earth. He was a man of earthiness, dust. The second man is of heaven, that is, is fitted for heaven. That makes sense in light of verse 48, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. That's a reference to whom? That's Adam, and that's us. Notice how it continues now, and as is the man of heaven, who's that? Christ so also are those of heaven. That's us. He's not clearly not saying our origin is in heaven, that we've come from the source of us is heaven. So he's clearly speaking here not of Jesus came from heaven, but rather Jesus' body fits him for eternity. And as his body is fit for eternity, shining like the sun in comparison, so will our body be fit for eternity. You see the connections. It's our body that's raised, continuity, but it is very different. It is made into something other than what we now know. So verse 48, as was the man of dust, so also those who are of the dust, as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And here, of is actually used and helpful. So we have lived our life in relationship to our head, Adam. And we've experienced a certain bodily presence and existence in this life. Our bodies are not evil in themselves, but they are also not strong, and they are subject to death, and they are subject to decay. But we will one day bear the image of the man of heaven. We will one day, as God's people, be resurrected to a life eternal, and our bodies will be fit for that. Just a a note, but anybody looking real carefully at this, the word man is supplied 
uh, to the Greek text here in our translation, but I think it's the right translation. We have, we, have, we have born the image of Adam, is the point, and we bear the image of Christ in our resurrection. For those of us who have put our trust, our confidence in Christ as Savior, who have been born again by His Spirit through repentant trust in the gospel, this prospect is life-altering. I think one of the challenges that I have in my own life and I have here this morning is to help us somehow to see the significance of this promise and this truth to how we look at all of life. Indeed, how we look at the body. Our view of the body is uniquely infused with hope. We get comfortable with this thought But think of it, as we walk with unbelievers every day of our lives, there is no such hope. We have a prospect, a glorious prospect, of our future bodily resurrection in union with Christ. But for those who know not Christ, for those who have come even among us here today, if you've not put your faith, your trust, your confidence in Christ as Savior, Future prospects for your body are abysmal. Where you are right now, that is the truth about your future. Your body will break down. Take it on the authority of an old man. It will break down. No matter how hard you try or don't, it will degenerate. It will grow increasingly ugly. It will grow weaker And eventually, your body is going to entirely abandon you. You have just a short time to live in the body, and unless Christ saves you, this bodily existence is as good as it's going to get. And the degeneration of your body is among the least of your concerns. Your body will be resurrected for separation from Christ for eternity and thus separation from all that is good. And I would just say, with earnestness of heart, run to Christ. Run to Jesus. Come to the one who has defeated death. All the problems of your life do not even begin to compare with the enemy of death that will defeat you. But Christ has defeated death. And it is in his resurrection, not in something we can manufacture ourselves. We can't even stay alive, let alone rise from the dead. But in his resurrection, there is hope, there is life, there is victory over eternal death and conscious separation from Christ's presence forever. It's not something you do and fix and yes, It's not something that you can even see. But by the mercy of God, come to Christ. Come to him and know that there is the salvation from death. But for those of us who by faith and grace alone have been saved by Jesus, we put our confidence in his victory over death. We rest in it. We identify with it. I know better that Jesus rose from the dead than I know my own name. And to know that we walk in that victory over death. 
For those of us who have come to that, it is time here to stop and worship. We will rise again, believer. And God has promised that those who have died in Christ live today in his presence and will one day rise again. And the bodies that we receive in the resurrection will outshine the body we now have. And we will forget our woes. Gone forever, all weakness, all incapacity, all malfunction, all pain and illness and disease and fatigue. And hey, I think we can celebrate it. All ugliness. It's gone. I mean, God's got a lot of work to do on some of us, but he'll do it. We will somehow know that's him, that's her, I think. They look so good, so glorious. And do we not feel it in our bones? I say this time and time again, but why can't we get used to death? There's absolutely nothing that is more guaranteed than that we die, and yet we all don't want to. And we all think something bad has happened. It's in our bones to know that there's something wrong as things stand. We know that death is an intrusive enemy. But we gather today rejoicing at this table, remembering the death that Christ suffered in our behalf to deliver us from our sins, and remembering here as well his conquest of death. We, in fact, gather at this table until he comes, until our resurrected Lord returns and brings out of death all who are his and those who are his at his return. With that prospect before us, we do not worship our bodies and we do not despise them. We do not protect them at all costs. They will die and we know it. We also don't treat them poorly. They're a gift from God. We don't cut them, we don't beat them, We don't starve them to death. We don't torture them. They are, by God's design and purpose and goodness, a gift, a tool. We do not overvalue them. We do not undervalue them. Rather, we see our earthy, Adamic bodies as gifts from God to enable us to serve Christ until He turns that body down and eventually turns it off. While in a world of physical suffering and death, then we do not fear and we do not despair. We know rather and rejoice in the prospect of our now and future bodies. This is no pie in the sky myth 
to help us get over the harshness of the reality of death. And we convince ourselves that there's a future out there that's not there just so we comfort ourselves with a lie. No, this truth rests on an empty grave. As we have sung to that empty grave, where is your victory? This is the bedrock truth of God's promises to those who commune with a Savior who has defeated death. His resurrection life has become ours, believer. And this changes everything. It changes the way that we look at every experience in our bodily existence. It changes the hope with which we open our eyes every day. If this is it says the apostle, and let us eat and drink and die. This table reminds us that this is not it. This is the seed that will come to life in Christ. May we commune with him in this way. Father, aid us to this end. Holy Spirit, come now and enliven and move our souls to commune with Christ crucified and risen. And to say even many with bodies falling apart and death knocking at the door, if not visiting us this very day as a church. May we say together with joy of heart, Jesus lives. And so will I, by grace alone. Lord, allow this truth to saturate down into our souls and to transform how we look at this world, how we look at our bodies, and to hold this world loosely. Here, we gather around what matters. Christ crucified. And we do so until he comes. Meet with us here, we pray, and draw to saving faith in Jesus, those who know him not. Move by your spirit to that end, we plead in Christ's name. Amen.